What's good everybody? It's your boy Big Nate. Welcome to Big Nate Short Story Club, home of the best short story clubs. And today I am joined with me by Jake to discuss the Library of Babel by Jorge Luis Borges. So how you doing, Jake? Oh, Big Nate, it's good to be back. Very happy <laughs> to see you again. Happy yes. holidays. Yes, indeed. Happy holidays. Christmas is right around the corner. And we were talking a bit about the show, uh, or before the show, but you got your gothic lit class approved. I did, yes. My gothic literature class, it's in my school's uh, uh, catalog for next year. I actually have That's to put like, a real. poster together. I, I, I have to like oh, still shit, pitch really. it to the students, nice. get enough people to sign up. But <clears throat> So what, classes, yeah, what do you plan? There Can are you classes for like yeah, yeah. three kids at my school. Oh, that would so, be cool, honestly. So you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's like, so I'm going to put together sort of an overview of the class. Like I want to do creative stuff too. You know, have like projects where they can, you know, you know, write a short story or like create Ooh. a short film even or like, you know, Dang. draw, you know, a piece of like gothic art or something and like yeah, yeah, try yeah. and mix the literary analysis stuff in with just like being creative. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's like the best way to understand a genre and everything. Yeah. Is, yeah to work with it yourself. Yeah, dang, you're you're the cool teacher, bro. So yeah, what 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 text did you have in mind for for that class? So I'm gonna do the uh, A Turn of the Screw uh, by Henry James. Oh yeah, which by the way, I just did a podcast episode with the homie Elliot, and they're reading Turn of the Screw right now as well. Okay, I, yeah, I'm really I actually haven't read it at all, but it's pretty. Um, you know, it's like it's pretty important. Yeah, definitely some Poe. That's mandatory. That's mandatory. But the thing is, is I love his, his, obviously his detective fiction, given that you yeah. know, he really kickstarted it. And I feel like it does overlap with the gothic stuff. Isn't that, isn't that weird how he like low-key invented Sherlock Holmes? Like, Yeah, I mean, it, it's but he's the also, basis. <laughs> yeah, but then he also writes like the fucking pit in the pendulum. and <laughs> Right, yeah. The, like, it's just a weird, I mean, you're right, there is overlap because even his mysteries do have like a dark, like over, like a gothic overtone to them. But it, it is just an interesting thing that Poe is the origin of like almost like the modern mystery story. Yeah, because he would, and I think it's so funny because he would just write about gross shit that people <laughs> weren't like sure they wanted to read about and then they did and they were like, ooh, you know what I mean? This It's like, <laughs> why do we enjoy horror now even though it like grosses us out or like mm-hmm. scares us? Like it's like, he he tapped into that for sure. That yeah, he did. Our, our um, interest in the repulsive. The grotesque. Yeah, yeah so the grotesque yeah. and like the uncanny and all that. Definitely the uncanny, yeah. Okay, so Poe, Turn of the Screw. Anybody else you're thinking uh, of? Yeah. Lovecraft? What about Love? Is Lovecraft making the um, cameo? Def- definitely some Lovecraft, and we'll probably watch watch something. There's so much good cosmic horror, um, yeah. especially now. It's become. I mean, I feel like there's enough of it, you know, in terms of film that I also want to, you know, perhaps read like read The Color Out of Space and then watch the yeah the movie although we should I, do that dude we should yeah. do that and we can just uh use it as an excuse for a preparation for your class because i was because sure. we've been talking about doing lovecraft i actually specifically wanted to do the color out of space yeah i want to because i don't i don't think it's really tied necessarily to like the cthulhu mythos and all of that it's more yeah it, it yeah it's an interesting 
sounding story to me. Um, and I think definitely Shirley Jackson. I'm deciding between We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is a really good one. And, and it, that one's more psychological, whereas mm-hmm. – and I guess The Haunting of Hill House is too, but, you know, that's more like a – haunted house possession story so i'm trying to because i also think it'd be cool to like study like real haunted houses and like where yeah. that where that phenomenon comes from as far as like the human psyche you know what i mean like yeah because yeah. i mean that to me that actually is a staple of of gothic literature is it's almost like the architecture of of the space is itself part of the gothic thing like it's it's like you can't have like a gothic story without some like without these without spires and iron rock gates and like these like almost castle castle like structures and so yeah the place is very much part of the of the gothic absolutely and so i'm i yeah i'm really looking forward to to exploring like all those little things. Cause I feel like there's so much I, you know, want to learn too. Um, and like, I'm not going to make teaching. It, teaching any... is the best way to learn. Teaching For is sure. the best way to learn. Yeah. And I've already been putting together like some, you know, like critical readings, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, mm-hmm. stuff like that just for me, obviously I wouldn't make some like high schoolers read like literary theory, but, <laughs> um, nah, dude, make yeah, it. <laughs> but that's, literary theory yeah. articles are truly horrific. You want to talk about, you want to talk about the terrible and the horrible scholarly yeah. articles, bro. <laughs> but I've, no, no. I've never not skimmed one. You know what I mean? Or like, yeah. only like located. You just, it's, it's mind numbing. You know what I mean? Yeah, truly. Okay, cool. Well, okay, yeah, we didn't even do... What's, so, opening segment, what are you reading right now? Why'd you pick it up, and how are you liking it? I just finished reading. We're actually just starting it in my class, but I just finished up Fahrenheit 451. Mm. Um, and my How was it revisiting that? How was it? The coolest thing for me, I think, was just seeing all the different technologies that have been predicted by mm. him. That was just, like, the coolest. And, you know, there's this... Um, the the mechanical hound is like the the you know the firemen who are responsible for you know burning books in this world they have this mechanical hound that's like you know the equivalent of the dalmatian except it is mechanical obviously and murderous and and you know the main character is terrified of him and it reminded me of the you know the boston dynamics robot yes. dogs you've seen oh, those true yeah and it just it's like, uncanny yeah those those are uncanny and you're right that's totally going to be something that's implemented in like you know authoritative institutions for sure and i, I mean i've already that's seen true. videos that's of true. them with like guns mounted on them so i Damn. just get every like all these different things where i was just like wow so, so much of this is either on its way or it's already here like the fact that he you know predicted like airpods even and you know how i don't don't remember that but i believe but yeah Yeah. no literature literature and honestly particularly i don't i don't think for fahrenheit fahrenheit 451 was quite science fiction but literature in general does have a very much prophetic quality to it i mean fahrenheit 451 you read right alongside 1984 typically and 1984 has been spot on in like an uncanny amount of ways yeah i think fahrenheit 451 i mean this is like an academic distinction but there's you know, we come to, sometimes we'll say like hard sci-fi versus soft right. sci-fi. I sort of think of it as like speculative fiction, right? Where it's not, you know, the the rules in the world aren't dictated by like scientific advancement or like other yeah. worlds. 
because the world's like just somewhat like ours, right? So it's like, again, the not too distant future. I think that's what makes it like so relevant is it's just a few generations removed from where we're at now. And now that we're here, we can see it, right? He predicts ATMs. I mean, flat screen TVs. Yeah. Like all that. And it's not just Fahrenheit 451. It's like literature time and time again is, is prophesizing changes to society yeah. not and yeah not it, it, not just science fiction even you know fiction in yeah, general yeah, right. right like life imitates art that old you know thing yep. but it happens yep. it reminds me of the story that we're that we will be discussing we'll, we'll talk yeah, about that god yeah i'm ex- i'm excited but okay so real quick let's see so i'm reading uh don quixote right now but i talked a little bit about that on my last episode but but no, I had just started it, so I actually hadn't really talked about it. I'm like 200, close to like 250 pages in right now, which is crazy that that's like a quarter of the book, <laughs> basically. But uh, this, it's very different than what I had in mind. I expected like this epic adventure, this huge, sprawling, overarching, it's like Don Quixote, like doing his his epic adventure. But what it is, is it's like... <laughs> It's, it's basically the premise is it's because I did not know this either. It's like the premise is basically this old dude. He's low key, like almost 50 and he's like a lowly knight position. He's not sorry. He's not a knight at all. He's in this lowly like societal position and he reads too many of these like cliche like knight books and and then he basically goes crazy. He reads so much of them that he goes crazy and he believes he's truly living in like a knight world and then he gets he gets like this his squire because um, he like everyone who sees him instantly knows he's gone mad and they kind of just think it's funny actually and they just kind of play along they're like oh yes and i you know tell it to relay to us your adventures but then he finds this um the, his his squire sancho panza who is described it's beautiful is described as having lacking like needing some more salt in his brain pan so basically he low-key just dumb and he's like basically just dumb enough that he actually believes like the night stuff <laughs> so it's like and, and then it's just them two basically just going on mis so far at least it's just misadventure after misadventure like you know and there's no real overarching thing it's like they basically just it's almost like episodic where it's like they go on one adventure and then it's like they it just ends terribly and then it's like all right what should we do now literally they just like let the horse decide where to go like just lead the way and it's usually trying to go back home actually and then they no it's literally like the so. premise of like a looney tunes cartoon Yes, you yeah, know what exactly. I mean? Yeah, exactly. Th- no, and I, it has very yeah. Looney Tunes qualities. Like, just I don't know, even like the slapstick element and like chasing or chasing each other around and just like pummeling each other, like <laughs> like that kind of shit. It's it's yeah, yeah. It's you know he Cervantes was an author that came up while I was researching the guy we're discussing today. You know what I mean? And it's uh, interesting to think that. Well, I just love how important comedy and, like, making, you know, the point of stories are to to be entertained and, like, the ones that we retain are the ones that, like, make us laugh a lot of yeah. the time. But and then, so you know, I love comedy that this is, canonical piece of literature right. is ultimately, it you know, is. it's a slapstick, you know. It is, because it true, and, you know, of course, comedy is often mixed with tragedy. Usually that's, like, almost in proportion to how, you know, something fun, funny something is. But... Yeah, no, and it's interestingly too now that because you're right, we're we're reading Borges, who um, Don Quixote was a huge influence for him, and you can even 
so we you need we need to do more Borges stories, but basically yeah. a major theme of his and and we see this in the Library of Babel too is like, you know, you have the text itself and there's like a, almost like a meta level, narr- not even narrator, but like, you know, you see, for instance, the footnotes in this text, like referring to the text itself, almost like in a literary critical manner. But it's like in Don Quixote, it's like he's refer, you know, you're doing the uh, story of Don Quixote and Sancho, but then constantly the narrator themselves is talking about how they're translating. They found the story of Don, Qu- Don Quixote like in some, like basically like a yard sale type thing. And then he, he he gets it and then he finds someone to translate it and he's constantly talking about like okay this this is where the story ends so then i had i as the narrator had to go and find out seek somebody out to translate it and then now that it's been translated i will continue relaying the story like you know that type of where then almost like that meta level meta level narrative element which is present here but then just a theme throughout borges all all throughout his writing yeah, that uh, where the narrative you know keeps expanding, where it's like the story within the story. What it would yeah. that's a what a frame story, right? Mm. That's what that's called. Yeah, so- sounds right. Yeah, yeah, and I love that. And it's you know speaking of Borges and all that this and this story in particular, particular Library of Babel, this idea of like storytelling and. I mean, just, like, language being, like, so recursive yeah, and, like, repetitive. So, like, to think about something like Don Quixote with this, at the time, sort of unusual or interesting narrative method of, like, the narrator also being... Revolutionary, yeah, revolutionary. Right, but to now we see that, I mean, we see it a lot, you know what I mean? It's a trope. Yeah. It's, like, it's a trope. it speaks to this idea, like, nothing's sort of original. And I guarantee you Cervantes wasn't the first, but the most notable. That's the other thing, where it's, like, there's all, it all goes back somewhere, but where does it begin is always my question yeah. with literature and art and all of it. Yeah, it's funny too that we men- we're talking about like originality and everything because uh, Borges is another story which we should actually do at some point where it's like something Pierre Menard's writing of Don Quixote and the whole premise of the story is he's basically trying to write Don Quixote like himself like but not just transcribe it he's trying to like create Don Quixote by I'm trying to remember I'm because tr- uh, it's been a while since I've read it he's either I think he's trying to write it not like he's like it'd be easy to imagine he's Cervantes and then write Don Quixote he's trying to write Don Quixote as Pierre Menard word for word and it's like I think he I think he even gets like a couple pages which which the narrator describes as infinitely more rich than the original Don Quixote even though it's like the exact replica of it which actually is you know a huge we'll, we'll we'll talk about that with library of babel but yeah it's been a little bit since it's, it's a little fuzzy in my mind but completely related actually to everything we're talking about that story yeah and this is why i see you know like borges and and i want to do yeah more of a like deep dive into like other spanish authors of the time but mm-hmm. it it's it's deeply philosophical because it's all like a thought experiment yes. Yes. You know, that's what to me makes it so philosophical is because it's like, okay, t- I mean, it takes, you know, these philosophical I- ideas and then like plays them out in some real scenario to yeah, see narrative. what happens. He gives it, yeah. He gives it, he gives it life and color and body. He makes, he makes it real. It's not, that's the beauty of Borges actually is it's like, you're right in a way. In fact, so I was doing like a little, not even outside reading cause I'm not going to do that for this podcast, but personally, just because I was interested, I read this, he wrote this essay called the total library, which was essentially, I, 
Yeah, I, I came across that just on his Wikipedia page as I was reading through it. I saw yeah, that. it's you know, it's basically it, you, it's almost him just coming up. It's almost like the thought experiment version of the Library of Babel, uh-huh. and then the Library of Babel um, makes it become real. But yeah, he's basically referring to historic thinkers who they talked about uh, something to do with like something about like atoms and every combination. Anyway, the point is he was trying to some, some historic thinker was trying to illustrate like the absurdity of it. They're like, those are the same people that think if you, you could drop a random letter uh, amount of letters and it could gold letters and it could form a sentence. And then, you know, then the, anyway, he goes through the lineage of that and then kind and then Borges, this is Borges's version of, of that like thought experiment basically. And that reminds me of, I I don't I can't remember the exact setup, but I remember, you know, I remember this coming up in a, a philosophy of mind class. I took it in in college and this idea that, you know, if you put like a group of chimpanzees or even like maybe one chimpanzee in a room with a typewriter, like and gave them enough time, like eventually they would produce the next great American novel. Yeah, no, put it put a pin in that. Well, not even put a bit. That's like that's we'll, base. This yeah, we'll this bring basically it back. is that. This exactly. basically is that. Exactly. But uh, no, I think there's there's some really interesting stuff to talk about there. Uh, so okay, yeah, let's just go ahead and get to the story. I want to ask, what were your first impressions when when you read this? What were your initial um, reactions? It it was pretty maddening. Yeah, um, that is that is the word. That is the word. There are stories where I have to read them, and then obviously I need to reread them. This one I felt like I was rereading as I was also reading the first time. It's the beauty because, of it. Because it, and it is, yeah, the, 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 it's so, every time I would get frustrated or confused by something, it, I felt like I realized that was the point or that like, yes, this is that crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah, like this, yes, isn't, exactly. this isn't my misunderstanding. This actually is quite I mean, maddening in some ways, but then it's yeah. like when you and get, I mean that that yeah. that gets to the point too, where it's like people are driven to like that's a theme of this story is people are driven to madness, driven to suicide be- because of like the because of the library, which yeah, no, and, and I think yeah. I don't know how sane the narrator is. That's another thing that like that's that's that a ama- that's another Borges it. that's another Borges theme is the unreliable narrator, the unreliable narrator. He's so yeah, no, I agree. maddening is the word, and Borges has a great way of just like immersing you in the story. Like you start reading it, and it's like within a page, you are just like in a different world. You have been constructed literally. He has constructed this entire, well thought out, real world of the library, and that's something that Borges just does really well. But yeah, this was one of the first stories I read by him, and it's like one of the first times in a long time my mind has just been been blown by just like the originality like the genius of the story and the voice like his his narrative voice is just so unique to him and 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 you know it's not just this story it's like all of his stories are like this but yeah like Borges has been a, a revelation to me just in terms of like the capacities of not only writing but also the capacity of even particularly maybe like the short story like what he's able to do in less than 10 pages is insane well and what i appreciate about it from that like craft point of view is that it especially i mean this library of Babel, which is 
you know, almost be, being presented as like a, a, I mean, a real document, you know, not a, not a, sh- yeah. a story, but as like, it balances this, which, you know, sorry, academic. that's the, it's like, where did the dot, who is commenting on the document? Is it within the world or not? But yes, go on, go on. Well, just like this balancing of this, there's this academic voice and this academic language and perspective. And also this like trippy as hell, deep dive into the human conscience that is, I don't even know if it would be the human conscious, but again, there's just like this focus on, I, I know a big thing with him was, with Boris was mirrors, right? Yeah, and mirrors. I kept, I kept thinking about this throughout this. Like, it's There's like, a mirror in the, there's a mirror in the gallery right. as well. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And this whole story as I'm reading it also being a reflection of the act of reading it. Mm, and reading yes. everything like it was just so it was like very academic but so then true. also deeply right philosophical and uh yeah I, no yeah, that's i, I that. think i think that's part of where the uncanniness comes from too because it's like you have this sane voice oftentimes like and this is just in general about borges where it's like you have some like uh like a footnote a critic or a bio- biographical account or something which is just it sounds real it's very grounding it's very normal in fact, very formal and like you say, academic. But the things that they're talking about are just literally out of this world, mind-bending ideas. Which it's like the contrast there that makes it so makes the story such a strange like space. And yeah, and space right is is a big part of this. I was thinking about you know, there's this concept of like uh, building a mind palace, right? I don't mm. know if that's something you've you've heard of but it's like i've this... ta- I've actually i've taught that in, in my no way and class Fuck yeah yeah. Tell, yeah yeah you talk about it then because i well, love it i love it and i it's it's hard, do you mean about it I... do you as in terms of like the memory device like the mnemonic memory device yeah so so like i said i taught this but do i uh let's see how well i remember it bro <laughs> um, it's i mean it's the idea that you can can construct a mental place typically it's supposed to be one you're like familiar with like uh like walking through your house or something like that and then you assign like these outlandish objects or landmarks to particular points in that in that mental palace space and then you associate those landmarks with the thing that is to be remembered so it's like people that have you ever seen that shit where it's like they have a whole deck of cards and they like flip through it just insanely fast and they're able to remember the entire deck of cards yeah, yeah yeah that the the method they use basically is the um the the memory palace concept and that goes back actually to like ancient greece when people were giving orations is that's how they would remember things is they would construct like the idea like some mental architecture upon which they like almost you they like fixate concepts onto the landmark within that space and then it's just, and it, it really yeah, it, you're right. It takes it takes some work, but once you can if you if you really try it it, it works surprisingly well. Yeah, and th- I felt like I was walking through Borges, right. his, you know, his mind palace, like his, um, that, and that's his mind he, labyrinth. You could say because labyrinth, labyrinth is a huge theme of his too. Absolutely, I don't know. Have you ever seen Interstellar, the Christopher yeah. Nolan movie? Okay, so you know the Tesseract. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That. That's sort of what I imagine this library has, but with the hexagons and more like connective tissue, but like this almost mm. otherworldly looking place. That's uh, true. Yeah, because you like the end. The end of Interstellar is almost almost like a library of Babel. It, it is he's a library, in like a bookshelf. Yeah, he's like yeah, in and this it's this endless. Refri- 
The infinite refractory almost seems to have some kind of like structure, like spatial structure. Yeah, that's actually so true. Okay, so should we get into the story? Like, should we talk about it? I think so. Yeah, I think that's a good lead in. I do want to start with the with the epigraph. Um, yeah, go for it. That starts all it. this. Yeah, so Library of Babel begins with this epigraph. It's not attributed to an author, but I did dig into it. But it's it reads, By this art, you may contemplate the variation of the 23 letters. Fuck, yeah, dude, already. <laughs> just... And and you know, that comes from, right, already. It just sort of, it's... Just in the context of what's about to follow and just hearing that right now is like, yeah. Yeah, you got to come back to read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it comes from The Anatomy of Melancholy, which I, you know, just did a little little Google search on. Hell yeah, um, nice. And it's a book by Robert Burton, published in 1621, but there's no original oh, version of it. And Ooh. the author was, he was known to like constantly revise and edit his work. So while there's oh, no original awesome. version, there were like, you know, several versions created after the original and that's so awesome. yeah i think we should come back to that uh, yeah no that's the, that's a yeah, that's a very important thing that almost is like the crux of and you know by the combination of these 23 letters right i mean that is the library of babel so okay this is i either like the first sentence or among the first sentences so just the beginning of a story is basically i feel like just laying out the library itself right so it says the universe parentheses which others call the library i want to note to universe in lowercase library in uppercase the universe which others call the library is composed of an indefinite perhaps an infinite number of hexagonal galleries with enormous ventilation shafts in the middle encircled by very low railings from any hexagon the upper and lower stories are visible interminably the distribution of the galleries is invariable 20 shelves five long shelves per side cover all sides except two their height which is that of each floor scarcely exceeds that of an average librarian so I'm kind of curious. I don't know if this is just my bad spatial awareness or like me trying to read this, but I'm like, what were you picturing physically when you, when you read that? Cause it's, it's a very elusive description or I'm just very bad at like, but I think that's kind of the point. No, not at all. I, I don't think, I don't think it's you specifically at all. And I, you know, maybe this is, this has always been a thing with writing for me in general is that I do have difficulty imagining the spaces sometimes uh where it's like may maybe i don't like i i don't know i don't know what that is i mean it's part of right reading and getting to imagine a place but i'm never satisfied with the descriptions i get of a physical place like of a space itself this i actually thought was pretty it illustrated it well for me but it also gave me room to like put my own meaning onto it yeah uh, so how so are you I, how are you viewing this I really imagine I seeing it like from above, like a honeycomb thing. Okay. Yes. Right. Right. Like a giant, and there's these like small, you know, the vestibules, and it and it yeah. just like okay. goes all over. Uh, yeah. Like I picture like so. First off, by the way, it's scarcely exceed the height scarcely exceeds that of the average librarian, which right? is just right claustrophobic, off the very claustrophobic yes. too. And, and then the next line or something is like, in the entrance, there's two miniature rooms. One allows standing room for sleeping, the other the satisfaction of fecal necessity. So it's like the standing room for sleeping. That implies like there's sleeping, stand, like there's not enough space to lay down in those rooms. And then there's a room to basically shit. Like <laughs> there's a little tiny room to satisfy your fecal necessities. 
Is that what your translation says? Yeah, that is what mine says. What is your? Because I'm, I'm all, tr- translation is very interesting to me. But yeah. Oh yeah, it's uh, yeah. Separate, separate topic, thing. separate yeah, topic. Absolutely. But yeah, this is good. I want, I want different perspectives. Mine says uh, one is for sleeping upright, the other for satisfying one's physical needs necessities oh wow see that's a difference that's a difference that mine feels sanitized fecal. that feels yeah. my version feels sanitized where did this yeah, come mine, from let me see it's like i picture like you're standing by and by the way there's like a mirror here at, at the end of some of the entranceway or something just like you can you can just picture not only is this whole thing infinite but even within one of the hexagonal galleries it itself is infinite and i mean that's kind of the point of infinity too is like you can take any subset and infinitely divide it but anyway I, yeah i pictured like this hexagon like before the librarian is this hexagon shaped hall that itself like forms in a honeycomb and then you look over this railing and it's this infinite abyss of nothingness because and then and it says from any of the hexagons the upper and lower stories are uh visible interminably so you can look up and just look over the railings and just look up and see nothing but but hexagons look down nothing but hexagons and i i like this you know at the very beginning that the narrator comments on this mirror and introduces the idea that the the people in this world it's the only world they know and they question it quite a bit right and they mm-hmm. debate on the it's nature like- of it Yes, it's like us with the universe. Like we are trying to figure out the fundamental nature and structure of the universe. That's them. They have like entire groups of people and it's like there's breakthroughs and they come upon discoveries, but yeah, no, for sure. And the them, you know, these you know, the librarians or I, I don't know what to call the people of this world, right? The citizens. Librarians. That's what they're that's the basically what they're referring yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah, and they it they're like why why would there be a mirror if it wasn't like the, if the library wasn't infinite? Why give the illusion of infinity? Yeah, um, and it's like immediately introducing this idea of like redundancies yeah. within within like the order of things. That that's what's that's what's funny about this story too is the narrator. Because it, it's like, again, like okay, so just like we're talking about the most like out of this world thing, and then it's like there's all these. There's different schools of thought, right? Like different philosophies behind what's going on with the library. And then the narrator, not like the actual, the person writing the document has like all these parenthetical things where he gets, he's like, this is clear. This is manifestly absurd, you know, these ideas. So it's like, he's engaging with it like in a real logical way, but it's like what we're talking about is like this hexagonal infinite structure of like this unending library okay let's just let's keep talking about let's keep laying the foundation for so this i thought was interesting too and i thought did a great job of demonstrating like the the sheer extent of the library which is that basically when he dies there will not lack pious hands to like basically throw his body over um the railing and it says my sepulcher what i don't know how to pronounce that sepulcher it's like gray my coffin basically shall be the unfathomable air my body will sink lengthily and will corrupt and dissolve in the wind engendered by the fall which is infinite so it's like you can picture him getting thrown off into this infinite abyss and he's never going to hit the bottom. His entire body, the decomposition process, erosion, which takes place over the course of decades, centuries, it will just be endlessly falling. Like, and he will, it's not, he will never even reach the end. He will be dissolved into nothingness by the time before he hits the, he won't ever hit the end. It's not even until before he hits the end. He just won't. 
That's what's insane about it. And this part was especially um, that description. And there's a few other descriptions too that we'll get to, but that one was like especially horrifying to me. You can you can just Um, picture it like eroding in midair. It's crazy. It's yeah. There are these. A lot of this is obviously very surreal, but then there's these images that are yeah so 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 terrifying in terms of yeah. how surreal they are um mm-hmm. honestly almost gothic in a way yeah, no, or it is. even it, like even cosmic horror like stretching it that right, far yeah. it's definitely if it's not gothic it's definitely gothic adjacent you know like there's yeah. there's <laughs> there is overlap i mean just even that image right of like the body decaying but and yeah and cosmic i think cosmic horror is honestly it's not quite horror but it's definitely cosmic but anyway then he says the library the basically the belief is the library is a is a sphere whose consummate center is any hexagon and whose circumference is inaccessible so i wanted to point that out for a couple reasons so it's the library is a sphere whose center is any of the hexagons for one this is a theme like all throughout his other stories where it's basically like any point can contain all the other points like there's this story he has called the Aleph, which we should do at some point too where it's like it's like this mysterious little small but yeah basically point in this in the basement that he just finds in the basement and if you look at if you it's called the Aleph, and if you look in the Aleph, it contain this one point in space contains all the rest of points it contains an infinity infinity Boreas has a hard on for infinity, bro. It's inf- it's infinity, infinity mirrors and labyrinths and tigers, but um, so that so that's just an interesting idea too. Like just that one that a, a one point could contain all other points of space within it. But then this was actually so I again I kind of went down a rabbit hole here, but like this was actually the belief proposed by mathematician Pascal, mathematician and philosopher Pascal that the this universe is very is, mathematical. The yeah. Story yes. Is for very sure. Mathematical. So that was just that's because that is how Pascal pers- uh, described proposed the the universe was organized that it is infinite such that because you think it's like how can any point be the center of the rest of this infinite sphere? It's like imagine like you know what if you took a point on the edgemost case? How could that be the how could that be the center? But the point is, there is no ed- like it's infinite. There's there no, is edge. no edge. There's, yeah. It's it's like it's like thinking about the universe, like our own universe. It's like imagining you know the quote unquote edge of the universe. It's like what that doesn't actually even make sense. Like that's a non like that's a nonsensical thing. To, like that's a non thing. And then that's how you get this idea. So then you picture this infinite expanse where it's like the set any point can be the center because, I mean, the more you think about it, the more it actually just kind of it's like hard to even articulate what we're talking about just because it gets so like into like the deep nature of reality and stuff. I, I like just wanted that, to throw that, that out this there. This story is, you can read, I mean, there is a, that's part of what I love about this story is that it is in part about language and storytelling itself. There's this philosophical element that, you know, becomes wrapped up in like physics and mathematics yes. You know, I think it'll be a while before I can fully even understand this story. And I don't, I think that's the point. It's inf- um, it's infinitely enriching. You can get something new out of it every time. There there are like just singular lines in here 
that contain like entire philosophies within them. So, and then this part, so, okay, I'm gonna read something that at first I thought was funny. Like I, I took this to be a comical point, but which I'll actually, I wanna talk about. Cause so he says, the idealists argue, first off, there's like schools of thought within this, within this, within this library, also yeah. known as the universe. Um, the idealists argue that the hexagonal ha halls are a necessary form of absolute space. They contend that a triangular or pentagonal hall is inconceivable. So to me, that was just funny. Like, okay, it's, it's a hex, like, why would it need to be a hexagon over any other shape? The idea that, I mean, like, so he, you know, this is again, almost where it's like, it's like kind of ground, like he has some kind of logical structure to it where it's like, you know, he said to, to imagine a tri triangular pentagonal hall is inconceivable while we're talking about like this boundless infinite universe of like hexagonal libraries, like that itself isn't inconceivable. The voice is, yeah, so strong and so clearly part of this world that it's like, yeah, I don't know. I it, I love that it comments on the issues that it's bringing up as if they, you know, are occurring in real time for the, for the but, narrator. Yeah, so, okay, I bring that up because I wanted to mention something. So, on a completely separate strain of interest of mine, I've been, like, I've come upon hexagons and i have the, i have i we can't get into it now but i got a whole theory of shapes bro but okay so real quick have you seen this this blew my mind have you seen the um the storm on saturn i don't like think the storm, so no. dude you should look this up right now look in fact look it up it's it's a like and all the the listeners should do this as well type in hexagon storm on saturn there is a storm like a vortex storm on the north pole of saturn that literally takes the form of a hexagon. And so that sent, while you're looking that up, that sent me on a whole different, that sent me, hexagons show up everywhere in nature, right? You mentioned honeycombs already, beehives, honeycombs. Yeah. The retina, the photoreceptors in the human eye are packed in a hexagonal structure. Carbon rings, like one of the, like all, and basically one organic chemistry is all based off of hexagon shapes. And then, like I said, we have it at like the cosmic level. Did you look it up? I did. This is insane. This is, yeah. I'm just I'm just looking up other instances of hexagons in yeah in nature. So this is wild. It basically, yeah, it appears in nature at like every level. So and apparently, so I mean, all shapes do, which which will lead me to my theory of shapes. But that's a that's a separate uh, this is a separate episode. But hexagons in because so at first I took this line to be funny. We can't like you know triangular pentagonal hall is inconceivable. But hexagons apparently satisfy this like principle where it's like if you have some given space, right, and say there's like a hole in the middle of it, to optimally fill the space, if you have to use a shape to optimally fill the rest of the area, hexagons are in invariably the answer. You can't use because it's like you think there's a there's a hole in the middle of like a square, right, and you want to fill the rest of the space with shapes. Triangles like leaves too much extra room. Squares like you miss some like you're gonna miss some of it, but hexagons are the optimal shape to to fill that space and that's why they appear so much in nature so i i just, I just kind of had to flag that like i went i've gone down this whole rabbit hole so it's like in a way that's actually he's kind of right where he says they contend that a triangular or pentagonal space is inconceivable it's called the packing problem this idea that hexagons are an optimal way to fill like remaining space and I don't know. I, it's just funny that Borges, whether that was intentional or not, was actually spot on with that. 
I, I mean, it has to be. And this is, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent. But right. now that I'm thinking about the hex, hexagon, and yeah, those pictures from Saturn are, those are unbelievable. I want to read yeah. more about this. but It's crazy. So there's a certain element of allegory to this whole story, right? Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, when it comes to, okay, this is going to sound totally out of left field, but. Um, yeah, I'm ready. Cert, like magical thinking, like like magic with a K. You know what I mean? Like yeah, like yeah, true yeah. magic. Do you like, listen to? Have you heard of? Have you heard of Weird Studies before podcast? I have not, but it sounds. like You should listen because I, I just I just they've done they they talk like extensively about magic with a K. I just learned about this. So anyway, go on. Yeah, and so another podcast I listened to the last podcast on the left does a lot of you know magical related stories and covers like important magical figures and so this idea of like shapes like having like um i mean think about even like a pentagram you know what i mean like shapes yeah. having certain symbolic and magical Co- power. cosmic significance exactly and so i i mean i don't know for sure but especially with like left hand path magic like i wonder if there if the hexagon is important in that in that world as well I'm, yeah. I'm like I'm thinking just on a in terms of numerology, right? right. Like the six sides, six is pretty important. Like integers yeah. of three is, are really important in magical yep. thinking. Three, yeah. Sixes oh, Borges, Borges loves the number three too. By the way, yeah, he he has certain fixations on certain numbers like fourteen and three and six and five. And so the pentagram is a really good point where it's like that is. That is a shape that has like all sorts of cultural and historical significance associated with it. And it's like, yeah, the hexagon is another example of that here. And, you know, talking about the universe, right? Like the infinite expanse of universe. And then especially like, so it's like any hexagon is this, is the, is the point within the, like is the consummate center of the entire thing. It's like hexagons do have some kind of relevance in terms of like symmetry and space. So, but yes, yeah, go on. I was just going to say, I just looked up magic hexagon and there is, it is some mathematical, uh, yeah, something to do with trigonometry. I'm not even going to read the whole thing, but it's a, uh. A normal magical hexagon contains the consecutive integers from 1 to 3n squared minus 3n plus 1. I mean, I don't know what that means, right? Same, but I believe it. It's something. (laughs) (laughs) There's something there. And you know, it's and then that is the shape that Borges has t- decided to tell his, his the you know, the Library of Babel. That is this that is the shape to which he has structured his universe, um, also known as the Library. So, okay, and also we're like a pa- we've talked about like a page or two, we're which is crazy. Even, yeah, haven't because we haven't even surface. talked about we haven't even talked about the books. We haven't even talked about like the actual books that it, fill yeah. this library. So he says, each shelf contains 32 books of a uniform format. Each book is made up of 410 pages, each page of 40 lines, each line of some 80 black letters. There are also letters on the spine of each book. These letters do not indicate or prefigure what the pages will say. So 32 books, each book, 410 pages, each page, 40 lines. Did you get a chance to look at that thing I sent you, the Library of Babel? Um simulator i I did yeah actually i'll pull it up right now it um i'll post a link for this on on the episode show notes because people should do this it's it's kind of fun to watch like it's truly just like random gibberish it's crazy at first i thought like because you know you read it and it's described one way 
And then, I mean, first of all, this website, which puts the Library of Babel in a digital space. This is like yeah, a labor yeah, of basic, love. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. this is so expansive. Because it, it contains, basically, you can randomize a book. And within that, and that book contains 410 pages, each of which has um, 40 lines, each of which has 80 black characters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so to see it, there was one thing to read it, right, and imagine it, and then this visual aid... Because yeah. it even if you go go you know you can choose random and just it'll generate you know a text that you know may contain you know some real world real words or at least a combination of words that can be arranged like it's but to actually browse through it right where they I mean there are actual uh, uh, hexagons right that you can browse through individually yeah. I mean and shelves. Yeah. It's it's yeah it's and it's, then it's it like incredible. and then they ha- it's it's a it's a really cool visualization of the idea and then it's like you because then it's like you can go within a book you can go to a random page and then you can hit a button called Anglicize which I I don't know I think it just picks up on like the most basic like Anglo-Saxon phonemes or something yeah but it's like most of it and it will highlight it for you and all of like a enormous majority of it is just gibberish just truly random letters. But then you you really do because I don't know how much you play with I like I was playing with this enough that it's like you eventually actually do find words like I, there was one where I found the word wine and then there was one where I saw the word like goop and I wasn't you know I wasn't like going through it a whole lot but you can imagine like just just by pure chance there do form actual words which is going to be the that is the whole thing with the we'll, we'll get into all that in, in, in shortly here but it's like you said with the with the monkey typewriters you can in. <laughs> Because it's infinite, you know, the probability is so low, but because it's infinite, it literally must occur that the library within it contains Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, Shakespeare's Macbeth, all the great works, as well as the next great works of literature. It must, like, it's not even, it might, it must. And so that was, so I mean, I was wondering if I'm going through the website, the Library of Babel. Is there a chance that I click on one shelf or, you know, click on one hexagon, one shelf, one, and instead of gibberish, it opens up to, like, Hamlet? Yeah, right? technically is it's possible. Is that possible? It is. I mean, I don't yeah. know what the – I mean, literally, like, so in terms of the website, I don't – it can't or just, like, realistically. Realistically, it must. Yeah. It is literally every single possible combination of letters at all, including – not. so not only will you have Hamlet, you'll have Hamlet that's off by a period or a comma in every individual space or a letter in individual space. Like, we're talking – it's hard to even think about, but we're, we're talking infinite. And then every single – literally every single combination of letters. And we'll talk – well – and you know th- this this has big implications for what happens in the library, like the people. But so I want to point out too. So I went on a Reddit because I was trying to, for a little bit, I was trying to figure out how many possible combinations there are, and I just couldn't. But thankful, thank God for Reddit. Yeah, for sure. Are are they did the math? So first, I'll just say so the Planck volume, right? Just to get right. So we're tying back into universe, like um, atomic particles, right now, subatomic particles. So the Planck volume is the smallest possible volume that exists much smaller than an atom. So already we're working at incompre- incomprehensibly small scales. There are about eight, eight to the ten, eight to the 184th basically Planck volume. So that's a 185 digit number in the entire observable universe. So basically like 80 to the 184th power is like literally the smallest possible unit that we have ever, like a fundamentally small unit 
there are there are 80 to the 184th power of those in the entire observable universe. In the Library of Babel, there are 10 to the 4,700 possible combinations of characters. So it's like literally, like that's the difference between a number to the 184th power to the number to the 4,006. Like that is a like almost 5,000 digit number. That's a 4,700 digit number, which is several, several, several times larger than like 50 times larger than the um, basically how much planks like the smallest unit that is incomprehensibly small could fit in the observable universe which is incomprehensibly big that is a mere fraction of the possible combinations of letters that are contained just possible and therefore contained in the library of babel this is reminding me of another like you know axiom and magical thinking of you know uh, as above so below Right. Yes. That's funny, dude. You should listen to this podcast because I that that phrase uh, is ringing a bell. Okay. Yeah. For sure. Right. But it's yeah. It's this idea that it you know it all expands upwards and below, and it all yeah. It's infinite. It's infinite. It's infinitely big and infinitely small. Yeah. Exactly. And then notice again, like we're inevitably coming back to like the actual universe, like talking about literally. Like, you know, the building blocks of the universe. Because, you know, he's talking about the library, but it's completely related. The, the library basically is a metaphor for, like, or a symbol of, like, our actual universe. But just with some, with different properties. But, uh, okay, with real more quick. physical Loki, properties. That's it. Like, yes. like all physicalized. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, real quick, bro. I got to piss. I'll, I'm going to piss and be right back. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, I am back from a, a quick mandatory bathroom break. So, okay, now, like, I mean, again, we're probably only, like, there's so much contained, and that's what I mean why Borges is such a, this is what makes the story so, his story so insane, is they're so packed with meaning and ideas and philosophy that, like, like, like we're only a couple pages in now, and now we're going to talk about the, uh, well, I, I propose we talk about the axioms of the library, which he, which he proceeds to lay out. So yeah. the first, yeah, yeah. Oh, I just, I, this is, this is where it becomes, um, there's like a religious aspect to it. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Where it's like in this world, obviously with the library is your life is the universe right there. Then beliefs and almost like faiths, um, yes. surrounding yeah, exactly. it. There's different schools of thought and yes, yeah, different like religious sects basically. And, you know, we'll talk, there's almost like a Christ-like figure that we'll, we'll talk yeah, about. Yeah. A, a hypothetical, well, so, okay. So, okay, the first, the first axiom, he says, is the library exists ab eternero, which means from an infinitely remote point in the past. And then, so basically that it just has always been. And that, like, that's basically the big, that's like the big bang, basically, is it's like, that is, there is no before the big bang. There's, it's just simply what, there is, there, it doesn't make sense to talk about time anything before the universe like that is simply all there is so that's the that's the first premise of the library which is basically the first premise of our universe yeah it's and like then, what are you yeah. to what are you to measure right before before the universe itself is in existence it's like saying it's like saying what's outside the edge of the universe there nothing like there it's it's a yeah. nonsense it's an oxy question. yeah it's oxy oxymoron yeah. on the edge of the universe yeah 
it's like saying what color is a triangle it's like that's it's it's a non it doesn't make sense it's i believe that's what you would call a categorical error but Uh so then he says he says man the imperfect librarian may be the work of chance or of malevolent demiurges the universe can only be the work of a god like you said invoking god so and he's talking so he says man the imperfect librarian may be the work of chance also or malevolent demiurges it's like what is you know we could put a pin in that but (laughs) what made me think about that is just like you know humanity the human species very much you could argue is also the work of chance where it's like you know and the original earth right before life ever formed the the spontaneous formation of life ultimately was just like a numbers game that acts you know by chance kind of began to form and then, you know, we go up and we evolve and then eventually. So we, it, you can very much say humanity is something of a byproduct of, of cosmic chance. Yeah, this it's it's so weird to it's hard for me to determine whether there's so much of this story that I can't tell whether it is left up to chance. Well, I guess maybe that's the point of it is that the fact that so much is left up to chance is part of the order of things. Yeah, no, it's I, I see what you're, the tension between like chance and almost because it's like the like the library, every book within the library is just chance, right? But then at the same time, it's like there's nothing chance about it because it's every possible combination of things, kind of in the way it's right. like if you know, it's, that's just the way it is, isn't that the order of things? Yeah, yes, exactly. It's it's almost like a deterministic approach to like the universe, but then also therefore like the library, right? Like, is it chaotic if that's all it is? If yeah it's so random that it's predictable (laughs) yeah exactly so that's the first um that's the first uh axiom of the library second axiom the number of orthographic symbols is 25 and and then so in i think in the footnote or something it says 22 letters of the alphabet the comma the period and the space and I had to look this up because I'm like, aren't there 25 letters in the alphabet? And I believe it's actually 26. 26, <laughs> 26 yeah. 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 Uh, so that was funny. Uh, but so, so I don't, this might be a translation thing too. I actually am not sure. Like, you know, I don't, I'm pretty sure Spanish language has as much letters, actually like symbols, if not more than the English language. Is my, am I right in that? I honestly could tell you. I didn't even think about it from that point of view. I really thought of it as just like, even in this infinite world it's not as infinite as it would be if it used every letter right. of the english yes. of yes. the english alphabet because there's yeah, a few exactly. missing which will add up to a lot when you consider every single possible com- combination of of letters you're missing like what four divided by 20 you're missing a, per- a whole like percentage of yeah. the possible combination so yeah no that's true but so i'm just right off the bat i'm like damn so we lost a few like what are these 22 letters what what has been omitted and what does that prevent you from writing too which is like an interesting thought like if you're missing like if if a work of like for instance like shakespeare contains one of those letters is it not true that it therefore cannot create it although at the same time it's like you know I don't know. This is kind of a pedantic point. I don't know what pedantic means, but actually, but I think it's like the right. It's like you can imagine copies of Shakespeare that have a typo, right? You know, like, but it's still very much. That doesn't make it any less really a a great work of art. Could be the same thing here, where it's like, oops, look, they're missing a letter, but it's still Shakespeare. So that itself was just interesting. Twenty-two letters, the comma, the period, and the space, and that's what we're looking at every single combination of. And then he, so he's talking about some notable examples that he found of this. And he says, 
Um, one of these books, I believe it was from his father, was composed of the letters MCV perversely repeated from the first line to the last. And it's like, that is also some cosmic improbability. Just seeing, because I mean, especially if you do this Library of Babel thing, like the, and you simulate it, mm -hmm. the probability of getting MCV repeated over and over and over is like, it's not, it's like impossible, but it's not impossible because it's in fact necessary that it must exist because it's every combination of letters ever. So that was like one of the wondrous books, one of the examples, like one of their, one of the, um, extremely improbable books that reached there that they had in their corner of the library right and imagine you're just reading through all this gibberish and then you get to this and it like upends your world but then it's sort you of horrific. also realize yeah but you also have to realize that it is was necessary and was almost inevitable i mean yeah. given enough time like that you were yeah. going to come across this book yeah. um and so again it's like throwing all of chance into the air where it's like, yes, it seems so random, but it had to happen eventually. Yeah, which makes it, in a way, not random at all. Exactly. But straight up, in, in a way, determined, yeah. So, and then it says, so another is a mere labyrinth of letters, but on the next to last page, one may read, O time your pyramids. And so I was, again, normally I don't, I'm not going to do research like this, but I just happened to look that up. And that is actually an allusion to Shakespeare's sonnet one, two, three. Which, ah. opens with the, which opens with the lines, No time, thou shalt not boast that I do change. Thy pyramids built up with newer might to me are nothing novel, nothing strange. So, and, th and I mean, it's, it's literally like what you said. Like, just if you have the monkeys typing away, eventually you will get a work of Shakespeare. And it's like, here we literally have the faintest hint at, at approaching something like writing a text of Shakespeare where we have oh time your pyramids you can imagine given enough iterations it will write the sonnet 123 and in fact this is almost like a first kind of pass attempt at it so and this just being a random book that they chose so just alluded like I feel like making real that possibility that because you know it's one thing to say like oh you could eventually land end up with you know Shakespeare's sonnet but it's like you you see it happening here you see parts of it already beginning to emerge Right, and the idea that not only is that sonnet spread across the whole library, but there's somewhere where it's all together. Exactly. Right, and then there's this mythical book which we'll talk about, but where it's where that holds where all of those individual individual pieces are, including the yep. original, including all of the variations with a period missing or a. It's brilliant. Um, yeah, it's yeah. brilliant. Because the thing is, it. it it really must exist. Like there actually must be a book that, so, okay. So I'll just, so the next axiom is there are not in the whole vast library, two identical books. And I'm going to read this part that I think gets to a lot of what we're talking about. He deduced that the library is total and that its shelves contain everything which can be expressed in all languages. Everything is there. The minute history of the future, the autobiographies of the archangels, the faithful catalog of the library, thousands and thousands of false catalogs, a demonstration of the fallacy of the true catalog, the veridical account of your death, a version of each book in all languages, the interpolations of every book in all books. So just pointing to the idea that literally everything is contained in here there is and in fact must be a book that for instance will outline exactly how you die like that must actually be like there is some truth about how you will die it can be expressed in words and therefore it exists in the library and that gives rise to to yeah the 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 first and also really most interesting uh uh, worldview within the the library with the vindicators. 
Yes. Right. Yeah. Because pe- people it, the vindications, right? Yeah. Because yeah, because if everything is like you can literally imagine, just like there there is a book that looks that will say truthfully precisely how many birds are in the air at a given instant on a given day in a given year like they will have the it must like it literally must exist and then so sorry just just making the point like it really is everything like you said there are people who they said there was no personal or universal problem whose eloquent solution did not exist in some hexagon and then the vindications are books of apology and prophecy which vindicated for all time the actions of every man in the world and people are thrilled by this that he says extravagant joy because and this, so this is where it, like you said it gets to the maddening quality. I was just about to say that this was yeah this melts my brain a little bit yeah, and it's like especially maddening too cuz it's like it's there it exists that's a fact and now you have to find it you have to wade through all this like nearly infinite amount of just junk to get to it but it is there the secrets of the universe are literally there to be found if only you could find the right hexagon. And you know, there's an instruction manual. There also has to be an instruction manual somewhere telling you exactly telling you how, how, to get to, to how to get to it. And then not only that, there's books that can act as ciphers to... Because then this is a theme too where it's like there is... Because there's every combination of things, it's almost like a translation issue. So your book that's nonsense, there's a book that can translate that into the secrets of the universe, into your actual death, if you could only find that book. That's like yeah. the beauty of it. And this is the uh, this is the other part of magical thinking where there's, you know, this idea of like the secret chiefs, right? Mm. Who, who hold sort of the secrets to everything and you have to, you know, rise to a certain level. Um, of you know magical and spiritual understanding to be able to even communicate with them, reach them at all, and it's I like mean, an the idea, endless process and never ends, right? It, recursive, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. that's even a thing he has in the book where it's like, okay, some went by the approach of like, let's find book A that tells us where to find book B, and it's like, okay, to find book A, well, actually, I did this wrong. You, but you, there's some yeah, other yeah, book yeah. that can tell you how to get to that book, which will tell you how to get to this. It's recursive. It's infinitely recursive, and that's what's maddening is this thinking about it like as a from a human point of view where you're like every every correct decision i need to make yes right is somewhere every this idea that the this like the secret to your success or happiness and there's not much emotion in this book or in this story besides you know sort of like the the schools of thought how dedicated they are to their philosophies about this world but like where like the explanation for your entire life story is somewhere right but you can't find it that's the maddening quality it's yeah. like it's he, he says the certainty that some shelf in some hexagon contained precious books and that these books were inaccessible seemed almost intolerable and this is too where you get like these like in terms of religious language you get like these pilgrimages where people are like going off so leaving their native hexagon which you know that's a whole there is like almost like a geography to it where yeah. it's like, he talks about how like 90 stories up they speak a completely different language and like whatever like x amount of hexagons down you can't even you don't even know what the fuck they're saying because it's so there's almost like there's regions but then people like leave their hexagons to go and search uh, and it, it's very much like a religious pilgrimage in search of the one true book or in search of the one true the person who has read the cipher to which we will talk about in a second but very yeah, much has religious overtones do they does does your translation use the word the inquisitors to talk about the searchers of of uh yes it does actually okay, yeah it does yeah. yep yep 
Yeah, so like very directly, I mean, you know, this historical term, especially from, you know, a Spanish writer. I hadn't even noticed that. Yeah, I hadn't even, I hadn't even made that connection with the Inquisitions, the Spanish yeah, Inquisitions. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, that's so true. And then, so just while we're on this topic of like the religious aspects of things, there they so basically people are reasoning that in some shelf of some hexagon there must exist a book which is the cipher and perfect compendium of all the rest. Some librarian has perused it, and it is analogous to a god. And then he's and then it says many pilgrimages have sought him out, capital H him, because it's like the person who has read that book which exists, which must exist, and it's like you get the idea almost. And it's, you know, it's not quite clear, but you get the, I got kind of the idea that each hexagon is like stationed by a person. Like every person has like, I think it was three hexagons to look out for. And it's like the, that's how that spans the entire library, except, you know, that's the question. Does it? Cause it's like human beings certainly haven't expanded into the entire universe, but it's not like, it's not clear how they got, how people got here in the first place what it is but they reason that if everyone is stationed in a hexagon and within some hexagon there is this true book then somebody has to have read that book and he is basically god he is a messiah he is capital h him well it is is he god or like the son of god this was the right what i liked about this was like is the book the cipher the god and he who read it and can like so spread yes. it is is that jesus you know that I was, think that's I think that's on point because it's like Jesus is the incarnation basically of God, which in this case, the person who reads that book is the container of knowledge. They are the one who is the the connection between the real, the, the truth. Yes, exactly. And the one that who is has touched that transcendent truth and it's his job to go and spread it to the people, to the masses. And you know, to your point Yeah, yeah go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, how did your book translate the name for that guy? What is it called? Um, I forget. I, I, I forget. See, what does yours I, say? I saw in some that it was the man of the book. Mine just says the book man. I think mine's, I, yeah, I feel like, I, I think mine is the man of the book, which sounds, See, definitely sounds cooler, cooler <laughs> yeah. than the book, yeah, than the book man. <laughs> but yeah, so the capital M, capital B, if I'm not mistaken, man of the book. And like you said, like, is, is the library God or is the person God? It says, from what I just said, some librarian has perused it and it is analogous to a God, not he, it, the book that has been read. So I think that, I think yeah. that interpretation is completely on point. And then, you know, just related to like what we've been saying, he says at some point in a footnote, I repeat, it is enough that a book be possible for it to exist. Like just emphasizing that there really is a book out there that contains the secrets of that contains the secret of the universe. And he even mentions at some point with the vindications, he says, the vindications do exist. I have myself seen two of these books, which were concerned with future people, people who were perhaps not imaginary. That's an example of one of those lines that is just, there's actually so much packed into that. Concerned with future people, people who were perhaps not imaginary. So then it's like the idea that you could have vindications for people that aren't even real false hypothetical people as well as all the rest by the way my dog is like drinking he does this every podcast he <laughs> drinks i don't know if you can hear that but anyway uh there's a few yeah there that line where it's there's so many qualifiers the idea and changes so much with each word yes. right where it becomes it, it's there's a lot of sentences in here that like even just some of the language. I mean, I actually had to look up quite a few words. That's as yes, I was for the reading reader. This. 
for the yeah. reader, it is Borges is is a big word, motherfucker. And he there is. was one this line he he's talking about you know again like this idea that you can't put any combination of words together that isn't somewhere in yes and he says there's no syllable one can speak that is not filled with tenderness and terror that is not in one of those languages the mighty name of a god and he says to speak is to commit tautologies yes and so i had to look that up tautology and it's essentially just this idea of of saying the same thing twice it just in different ways and it's like mm. a redundant communication so it's like oh, everything wow. you're saying nothing you're saying is original because it's all somewhere else i thought i knew what tautology meant and i did not that's 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 great that's 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 perfect that is this like that is and it is a mathematical right. it's a uh like term in mathematical logic too damn that's i know awesome. as well and an example in mathematics is x equals y or x does not equal y damn okay that's yeah it's crazy how much like almost not even trying that it how much this this story leads back to mathematics and physics and the nature of like the universe and like these abstract concepts and you get i mean that's the thing too is like you're reading this and you get that feeling like that it is somehow related to these like logical structures and the universe and physics but like he does it very it, it almost like it's just it for me it's just a feeling and it's like and it's like where did that come from it's like it's like the language he's using is like tied is like inextricably tied to all these different things that we're talking about now. But like related to the idea of like you can't utter anything that does not mean in by some other book like something else. He says he he says in another language cuz he's just like he's talking about like the nature of language. He says in another language library is bread or pyramid or anything else. You who read me, are you sure you understand my language? So that also related to that like that's breaking the fourth wall kind yeah. of thing classic Borges and then you you mentioned earlier actually qualifiers that's a that's a that's that's something Borges does frequently which he, it's like the the narrator who you think is telling the story authoritatively they'll say something like perhaps like maybe it was the case that this happened and it's like wait did it happen or not like and it's just that one word that changes everything but so and it's like that makes it so speculative he, where it's no longer yes. strictly academic right but now it's like oh this is part of the story the thought experiment you know yeah and it's like, so he says in another language, library means bread or pyramid. And it's like, the beauty of it is that's happening with the reader. Because he says the correct definition of library, this is according to him, is, quote, the ubiquitous and everlasting system of hexagonal galleries. That is not how we define library. We define library in a very different way. So already, and he says, you who read me, are you sure you understand my language? So already there's just an enormous amount of like ambiguity that's going like what are we even reading at this point what do we do we even know or we think he's talking about the, and this reminds me of an like yet another thought experiment you know the um and i i w- wish i could remember the exact setup but the uh you know it has to do with like you know a theory of mind and color mm. right which is how you know how that can be subjective depending on upon our experience whereas in this world library means right everlasting ubiquitous system of hexagonal galleries because of the context of the word right so do you know the experiment i'm talking about when i say i can i was just about to say there's a couple yeah there's the mary the, the thought that's that's i think slightly different but although totally so the 
totally relevant, which is that it's like Mary can be in this black and white room. She can be in this room. There's no color whatsoever, but she's a color scientist, right? Yep. Like she can talk. She's a, she's an expert at the color red. She knows all about the like photoreceptor wavelengths that with which red is produced. It knows that things are made of red, etc. And then, you know, the idea is if she walks outside and she sees red, she sees the actual color red, but she has not seen before. The argument is, has she learned something new about the color red? If yes, then mental mental substances are things. They are things in the world. So there's that. And then related to kind of like this idea of like, are we speaking the same language? There's also things where they've looked at other cultures and it's like certain certain cultures that are exposed i guess to like different color palettes i forget the specifics but it's like they won't notice a difference between certain shades of green and blue whereas whereas like for instance you could say like western americans they can say oh this is green that's blue if you show this to a different culture indistinguishable like you'll show them this that which one are they different yes or no no they're they're the they're the same color and i so i don't know the specifics of that but that that is the that's the idea Right. Are we speaking the same language? Are we experiencing the same subjective things? Yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, again, he, he explicitly says, you who read me, are you sure you understand my language? It's very much a nod to like, we might be on completely different paradigms right now. Yeah, like, I was what like, we're reading bro, about no, no, I'm not sure <laughs> I do. Exactly. I mean, it literally just, he said, the correct definition of library is this. And it's like, that's, that's not our definition of library. And so how many other words in this, in this book is he talking about where that means something where for us it means something else. And we're just talking right past each other. And that especially made me realize how unreliable the narrator right. could be. Actually, this whole basically last page feels like yeah. it turns more onto the narrator itself. And I'm like, oh, man, this – like how could you not live in this world and be driven crazy by it? Yeah, he, he mentioned he, – he says he thinks humans are going extinct basically because <laughs> yeah. they're driven to madness. And he says, I believe I mentioned the suicides already, which, yeah, he did because people are just literally driven driven mad by this. And, you know, in a way, I mean, this is, this is a bit of a stretch, but, like, if we're thinking about the library as a, a symbol, metaphor for our own universe, when you think about our own universe, it can – when you think about it, it, it can drive you a little mad. Like, what's, what is an atom? An atom is – and I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, this is kind of like a separate strain of thing I've been going, but it's like 99.999999999996% empty space. And that is what makes up everything. And then you can go on an atom and then most like subatomic particles and the atom is mostly nothing space is mostly, mostly empty space. And like the more you go, like you can, it's like, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. It's like, where is the bottom? It's like the universe is like the library. There is no bottom or perhaps there is. I mean, that's the thing. But in the our narrator says that the fact that the, the thought that the universe might end, that the, that the galleries, the columns might end is manifestly absurd. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, well, I was just going to say it's um, it is maddening and it's uh, it reminds me of that Nietzsche. However, the quote actually goes. But, you know, if you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back into you this like just like this infinite process of reflection whether it's like literally on the quantum level right or if it's personally internally like whatever you're contemplating there is no end to it there is ultimately no answer to it that's a great quote too because we've even been referring to like you know you peer down the over the guardrails into the gallery and it's an endless abyss that's how we've been speaking about it and like you just said you look into the abyss and the abyss will look back up at you or stare back out at you and then what happens people are driven perhaps almost to extinction by suicide and madness so and then it's like yeah 
Which is interesting, too, that if the library is infinite, that means that there are probably... that, And yet there aren't infinite people, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, that's the other thing that I found particularly maddening. Exactly. And that's... Well, it's also ambiguous. Like, is... Is, like... That is an open question to me. Is it's kind of implied, right? But it's like, is every hexagon, like hexagonal gallery, manned by a human, like by a person? And if so, like then there really must be somebody who has seen the truth. But then, so, okay, okay, this is actually perfect segue. So, he towards I think it's the last page. He says this useless and wordy epistle itself already exists in the library, and so does its refutation. So it's like already just that idea that the the very text that he the library of babel the story must exist in the library of babel which is just another wonderful meta recursive thing that's terrifying to me too to not have yes. right again not having an original idea even your originality has already been determined by chance determined and worked out that this like, whole conversation literally verbatim yeah. must exist in library of babel and it's it's like you say so what just related to what you, it, it, it there is no original thought. He says, the certainty that everything has been already written nullifies or make phantoms of us all. What is the point of coming up with original thoughts and ideas and philosophies and stories when it's already there? Necessarily, it is all, there is nothing new that we can add that is that has not already been, that doesn't already exist. It's the most soul crushing thought of all. Like literally it's just, it's like, what's the point? You know what I mean? Yeah. To anything. Like, um, I mean, you take, yeah. like, you, like, we're talking, we talk about, we've been talking about writing and Shakespeare and everything. Why write some great text when it's literally, it's almost like you're a sham. You're almost a, like, sort of copier in a way. You're unoriginal. Although we can talk about, so that's a separate point I want to talk about. Like, for instance, would you consider, would you consider a monkey typing away that did write Macbeth? Would you consider that a true work of art, even though it was brought about by random chance? I, yeah, I mean, the first thing that my mind goes to is because we're reading this in this, um, you know, what art means to us, like what, you know, obviously our language shapes our understanding of reality, where it's like, okay, if I understand art as something that I can appreciate and contemplate and even just like be entertained by, and if a monkey wrote Macbeth, like that monkey's a good writer. Right. That's yeah, a good but, storyteller. See, but, and it's right, a good then, piece of art then. So, right. So, I mean, you say that that's almost, I mean, I'm with you. I'm with you. Right. Like you hand me, there's two copies of Macbeth in front of me and one was written by Shakespeare. One was written by a monkey and they're identical. And I don't know that. Why would, why I have no reason to think one is more work than art of other. But then at the same time, like, you know, there's obviously some level of like absurdity to the claim that if a monkey randomly types something away, this is a true real piece of art. Like there's some, there's some tension there. And so, okay. So like this like brings back to some of this other, bringing it back to like philosophy, like, uh, th like of knowledge, like epistemology. Cause I, I remember when I first heard this, I'm like, this is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Like, it's just, it's just a, like, so it's like a thought experiment, but anyway, so anyway, the idea is, so it's about what is like the what is the nature of knowledge? What can we say is true knowledge, right? The consensus for a long time was that it's a justified true belief. You have reasons to believe it, you do believe it, and it's a and it's and it's true, right? That is what knowledge is. So then, Gettier, this this philosopher Edmund Gettier, 
came up with this thought experiment. So, okay, you're, you're in Pennsylvania, right? And you're driving through this rural area. And for whatever reason, there's, it's filled with fake barns, like movie set barns, just like the front of a barn, right? But every here and there, there is a real barn, right? But okay, so you're driving and you look to your left and you say, oh, look, that's a barn. And like, again, like 90, like almost 100% of these are fake barns. And so you look to your left, that's a, you say, that's a barn. The idea is that you're justified in thinking it's a barn. You have no reason not to think it's a barn. You really do believe that it's a barn. And then it turns out that the, bur- the barn you pointed at actually was one of the true barns. It really was a real barn. So you are true. It is true that it is in fact a barn. So the idea is it's like that would satisfy all the conditions of what real knowledge is. But at the same time, we would think, is that real knowledge when they basically just got lucky? Just got, like, yeah, by just, chance. Yeah, so it's like, so then, so, and then it's like, so we're talking about this in the context of art. Now we're talking about it in the context, of, and it's like, the Library of Babel is about like knowledge, about like there being knowledge out there. But then it's like, is it real knowledge if it's just a combination, just a random by chance? Like, I, you just happen to see the barn, you just happen to pick the one out of a million right barns versus like you just happen to get the one in the million combination that says something true. So it's like, is it, real knowledge and 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 then especially the idea it's like because if it walks like a duck right it quacks like a duck is your perception (laughs) of reality yeah uh true it's it's a exactly it's it's basically a and it's like so i mean and i don't really know the like it's uh, that's something i've kind of like because like with the Macbeth thing is that a real piece of art i don't like part of me says yes but part of me says no it's like kind of a it's like a real dilemma. I don't actually have an, an answer to that because they both seem kind of wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, so are you familiar with Coco the Gorilla? Oh yes, nice. of course, yeah. yes, yes. I figured you would be, but I, I, I knew that um, there was, and apparently there's another gorilla named Michael who also produced paintings, right? Yeah, and, and, and language I, and sign, sign yes, language. Yeah, well. absolutely. Yeah. Like actual verbal communication but but so paintings I'm, Ooh, yeah i'm, so I'm looking at these paintings right i i i mean there are some for sale i can buy love by coco for a hundred dollars right probably that's a pretty print cheap, yeah. but it's all oh, yeah right, right. I see. yeah, I see, I see. yeah. Um, or this is uh or Bird how do they wait let me look coco. it up let me let me hear i'll send I didn't you the know. link right now um okay i see love yeah okay dang i'm seeing the ones by michael too that's whoa dude that's kind of like dude this low key is like you, you you see the bird one too the one called bird the bird i really like toy dinosaur Holy also shit. stink gorilla more stink gorilla more by michael i dude, have to imagine is... they name these two <laughs> i because that that's really i mean yeah coco is actually and and michael are are i haven't given them enough thought but dude these tell me these don't resemble cave paintings bro and so imagine, and so if we put this in a gallery, don't tell anybody who the artist was. Yes. Right? right. And they look at it and they comment on art. And then you tell them that it was painted by a gorilla. Does it stop being art? Right. Yeah. I mean, the gorilla thing is actually a little complicated because it's like I almost think they – because we think about there has to be some kind of internal life and some kind of feeling. It's like I, I wouldn't put it past the animals to like – actually have some of some of that what i consider to be art i wouldn't be surprised if they had some of that but i take your point like if a machine drew this or something that's another example right. like is it still art so in that I mean, case does the media does question. the medium matter right does the medium like this is visual um and because we can 
because art because visual art can be both literal and abstract right right and representational does there's it's, no, no answer I, to I this take question. the point uh, I take the point it's 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 tricky and I think so and this that, that's like I think the perfect analogy here is like you know like again because the library of Babel must contain I don't know I like the question of the medium because for some reason it seems different but I can't I can't quite place why. Like if a but, chimp I mean, did Macbeth and if a chimp did a painting, right? Which one? Which one of those things? Yeah, <laughs> should it be known yeah. for? <laughs> right, exactly. Damn, I, you know, I like the idea too because we've been talking about what if, what if a, um, you know, what if, what if it uh, came up with Macbeth? But I like the idea too of it coming up with new works of art, like, mm-hmm. like with that we can't even think like they don't have a title because they haven't been they haven't quote unquote written yet because they right. haven't and been they brought just, into existence. By chance, they just happen to put together a completely original story. Some, something as good or better than Shakespeare, even. We, right. There could be the perfect, sublime text out there. There could be Don Quixote, but like just like some more perfect version of a of it out there that we would that is in fact might even transcend like hu- the human capacities for literature. And that would, but that would. Especially like in the Library of Babel, that would upend everything because right. it would have to mean that the library did not contain everything. Yes, which, is... which it, yeah, which which it must. It would, <laughs> right. So. We're yeah, we're reaching towards the end. You wanna? We got like a couple more paragraphs. Yeah, I think are pretty so, interesting. So okay, yeah, I'll, I'll say what I've gotten, and let me know if I miss anything. So. It is not illogical, I say, to think that the world is infinite the, because so that okay, that's another thing to talk about. The combinations of letters is not infinite. Technically, it's yeah. enormous. 50, 50 times like the possible combinations of quarks in the entire universe. But it it would end at some point. So then he says. So he's saying um, I, it is not illogical. I say to think that the world is infinite. Those judge it to those judge it to be limited. Postulate that in remote places the corridors and stairs and hexagons could inconceivably cease. A manifest absurdity. So that's the idea of like the edge of the universe. Like just um, so you have this boundless. Like it's it's like imagine going getting thrown off the the um into the guardrails into the ventilation shafts or whatever and then hitting a bottom, like it, it it's it's absurd to think about like that the that the halls would at some point end, so he says I dare insinuate the following solution to this ancient problem, the library is limitless and periodic. If an eternal voyager were to traverse it in any direction, he would find, after many centuries, that the same volumes are repeated in the same disorder, which, repeated, would constitute an order, capital O, order itself. My solitude rejoices in this elegant hope. And it's like... That was a mic uh, drop. And there's a, yeah. there's, a, there's a footnote after it that I wish he had not included. You know what I mean? Because I like wanted to stop right after that, but I was like, oh, I gotta read this. I know what you're talking about. I did think it was, I found it, I, I had the same feeling that it's like, just, you know, you ended it already so perfect. Perfect, but, yeah. But, but this is another example, and I actually do kind of like, I do, now that I've reread it a few times, I do kind of like the idea. And the, it's interesting that it's like a footnote for the final sentence, right? But it's like, and this is almost the critical academic tone. Uh, Leticia Alvarez de Toledo has observed that the vast library is useless. Strictly speaking, one single volume should suffice. A single volume of ordinary format printed in nine or ten type body and consisting of an infinite number of infinitely thin pages. And, like, the idea that the it's like the entire library could actually be contained in a single book. 
Mm-hmm. Like just kind of, just kind of. Again, it's really just him playing with this idea of infinite combinations of things, ultimately yielding everything. Right, and why the need for all the uh, all the single books if you can fit it all in one? Yeah, he says the li- the vast library. Yeah, they've concluded, they've observed that the vast library is useless. You didn't need this whole library. And then it's right. like, what is the context of that footnote? What like is this somebody within the hexagon universe, or is this somebody? outside of it that has discovered it like it that that's like just an interesting device on Borges's part particularly to end with kind of calling the whole thing into question like what is he's like naming like historical figures but historical where historical in what context and that's why and that's what then grounds it in like uh you know fiction which i love yeah right is it's like it almost really does feel like you're reading an academic page paper and that you reach yeah these references to this world, you know, that and, and people and things we're not familiar with. And it's like, oh, that's right. This is like a story. Uh, yeah, at the end yes, of the day. exactly. It, take, it takes you out of it. It's, it's taking you out of it, out of it, which um, which Borges does. And then like just re- referencing because Don Quixote was a um, big influence for him. Don Quixote also will take you out of the story. He's telling you he's writing it. But yeah, man, this it's a it's a crazy it's a crazy story. There's a lot going on in here. I think it is maddening to read on your own, but to talk about it doesn't clear yeah. it up. No. It just makes it more interesting and less like cryptic and cerebral, you know? If any if anything it almost opens up a new space. It's like now there's all these things that are unresolved. Like wait, I hadn't thought about this. Like when you take this like inconspicuous sentence and like actually like play out what it's actually saying it's like holy shit there's a whole other world of thought just in that possibility just in that statement yeah because you know like one of the things too with this is it's like so there's knowledge out there right there's true knowledge but it's like what even it's like what the fact that there's every possible combination of things and he might even have a line about this actually like eliminates the possibility of knowledge you're basically at square one because how can because for every real for every real account, there's a, a trillion fake ones. And it's like the fact that every possible combination exists. I mean, he kind of says it nullifies us, makes phantom of us all, makes phantoms of truth at all, because how can, how can you determine what is real from right. fake? And there's at some, somewhere there's one book, right? Telling you what's real and what's fake. And then there's yes. another one telling you a different thing. And that that's the mad, that's the maddening quality for that's every, the maddening quality of for it. every, like you can do thought experiments on the book it on the library of Babel itself. Right. Yes. But it doesn't bring you any closer to like an answer. No. Of any if anything, it, yeah. It just sort of asks, it just sort of poses more questions. And then, you know, the, the, so yeah, the, the language in here in terms of like, you know, it's like big words and shit, but I, I personally find the prose, like his actual writing style, so like original and engaging, like in terms of just how oh, yeah. the story is told, it like sucks you into it. It's very he's an excellent writer. Yeah, yes. Yes. It's, and it is like, he's a writer's writer. Yes. For Do you sure. know what I mean? Constantly, I was... constantly referring to, I mean, he's got like Shakespeare allusions within the text. Right. Like, who would, Yeah. There's this happens sometimes in my class. It it happened when we started reading Ray Bradbury, right? So I'm I mean I'm working with with teenagers, right? And so you know there are a lot, and you know it's heartening to see like the ones who appreciate right the language, who yeah. recognize like the value and almost struggling with it to understand it, and then you know 
you know, becoming a better reader. Because, sorry, just real quick, it's also yeah. in the precision of his language. Like, we're talking about how one yes. word here kind of can change the whole, inter- which is why I think translation is an important issue, too. Exactly, but, yeah. But, yeah, so anyway, the precision of the language is why it's so tricky, too. But, yeah, go on. And so there's that. There are students that really appreciate precision. And then I have the some students where they'll anything that isn't as put as simply as it can possibly be is considered fluff. And it's like this, right? Do we want descriptive writing or do we want the most simplistic writing possible? Right. Right. Which one is going to be more effective and compelling, right? And it's this back and no, forth. No, yeah, it's a, it's a tension. I almost, yeah, I think that, because he does have a very sort of what I would call like maximalist writing style where it's like, like every noun has an adjective and everything's got an advert. Like, you know, it's, it, it is very... It's weird. No, so yeah, that's definitely. He's not like worried t- about concision. He's worried about precision. He's not yeah. worried about the economy of language, but being able to say exactly what he means without yeah. like any ambiguity. Yes, exactly. But and then but so it's like, so I'm I agree. He obviously like yeah, does have a sort of like um, not not superfluous, but like whatever we're, like that word we're talking about. He does have very much that. But then at the same time, it is in, in its own weird way somewhat kind of concise in the sense that it's like there's not a wasted sentence in this story and every sentence itself like you could imagine this could have been like 20 pages but it's almost like the weirdly in a strange way it's almost like the condensed version of this story and this is one of those very simple sentences that's almost like a a commandment in it which is to speak is to commit tautologies right right it's like to yes. for him to expand on any one idea would be to simply repeat what has already been said, which is unnecessary. Yes. Right. And what is the point? Yeah. Uh, Which I think is, yeah, is like, it's in the story, but it's also reflected in the writing itself. And then just the different ways in which like he draws like at a meta level and within the library itself and everything, just like these different levels too, is just like, so actually, can you um, just for fun, what was that? What was the original preface quote? Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Epigraph here, let's see. By this art, you may contemplate the variation of the 23 letters. Yeah, I mean, the you may contemplate the variation of 23 letters. That's what we've been doing for the last hour and a half, right? And it, yeah, it does just hit, it just does hit different afterwards. Like re, having, does. in, in yeah. the context of the story, it's like, there's a lot you can, that is actually in a way like the, the crux of this story is, is that single line. It, it is really brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's basically all I had to say. Do you have anything else? No, no. I, I, yeah, I got everything. I mean, what can I say that hasn't been said? Right. Exactly. <laughs> to, to say anything, to say anything more would be to commit tautology. Exactly. Uh, okay. Actually, although uh, there is one thing I not even, I don't even really want to talk about it. I just want to point it out. Because there's another line here where he says he's talking about the pilgrimages or something. And he says they were spurred by the delirium of storming the books in the crimson hexagon books of a smaller than ordinary format, omnipotent, illustrated, magical. That's the only line that that idea gets. But it's like which, again, there's a whole, that makes you question the metaphysics of this whole universe. Like what what is this crimson? There's one. There's a singular gallery the crimson hexagon books of a smaller than ordinary format what does that mean omnipotent see this is the thing it's like he's it's like a lot of words right but each of those words conveys a whole 
different set of possibilities. Ordinary, uh, omnipotent, illustrated, magical. It's like illustrated. What? It, like you mean there's pictures? Like anyway, that, so we don't even and need to get into that. And it upends everything. If it exists, yes. it upends everything. Yeah, this is just yeah. We don't need to get too into it, but this idea of magical thinking and if the, I mean, even thinking about the paranormal, right? If ghosts are right. real, if spirits do hang out Ooh, on I Earth, like it upends everything, right? If that yeah. if that one piece is true, yes, um, it's, yeah. it's the ir- it's the anomalous, it's the right. irregular, the inexplicable. What is the? I like that. What it's like the crimson hexagon is almost like a symbol for like the supernatural. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's a okay. That's a perfect note. To perfect end on. place. So, yeah. <laughs> all right, everybody, smash that fucking five stars because you know this was a goddamn five star conversation. This I mean, there should fire. be. Si- I wish we could do six hexa. You know, hexa. Six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> smash those hexagons. Give it, smash the five star six times. Um, follow me on Instagram at Big Nate's Book Reviews. And without further ado, thank you for listening to Big Nate Short Story Club, home of the best short story clubs.